0: Thank you, Brother Chris. Good morning, everyone. Let's turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. As we continue our journey through the book of Mark, we'll be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. Now, last time we saw the conclusion of really the central section of the book of Mark, which dealt with what it looks like to be a follower. Of Jesus. We learned throughout the, that whole section what discipleship involves. We learn that true discipleship, to be a true disciple and follower of Jesus, that will be a person who walks by faith in Jesus as their Savior. We learn to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We learn that we must be willing to lose our life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. We learn to be humble servants and to have, have a humble spirit like that of a child, rather than a powerful or prideful ruler. And today in chapter 11, we see Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, make what is called his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just one week before he submits himself for the sake of our sins to be killed on the cross. Now this passage dramatically reinforces Bartimaeus' identification and loud proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. You remember last time he was walking from Jericho on his way to Jerusalem and Bartimaeus was there on the road and He wouldn't stop crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this passage dramatically reinforces his proclamation. Jesus, the Son of David, the Messiah, is now coming to Jerusalem. And he had a a horde of followers. A huge crowd was following him. His disciples and many others were following him as he led the way to Jerusalem And these same people that were sternly telling Bartimaeus to be quiet will now join with him in their praise of Jesus on the road as he enters into Jerusalem. You remember they were telling Bartimaeus, be quiet, shh, stop it, be quiet. Now they're going to join in with his praises and sing Hosanna to the son of David. Let's look at chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, and we're going to look at the first It's like 10 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you or says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Why are you untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and then they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Now, isn't this a strange way for the King of kings and Lord of lords to usher in his kingdom? Isn't that strange? (laughs) I think it's really strange. And you know, his disciples there, you know, you gotta wonder what they're thinking, right? You know, here's Jesus. This obscure request, you know, and he tells him very specifically what to do. You know, you're gonna go into a village, there's gonna be a cult there, no one's ever sat on that cult. Like, how does he know? What? (laughs) Go untie it and bring it. It's just a strange request, a strange way, right? For the king of kings and lord of lords rides in on a colt. So why does he ride in on a colt? What is a colt anyway? You know, I didn't even know what a colt was. <laughs> what is a colt anyway? Well in this context we know that the colt Jesus rode on, it's the foal of a donkey. So it's a young donkey basically. So he, here's the king of kings and lord of lords he's riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey. Now, why in the world would he do that? Would you expect that? Of course not. You would expect a great and mighty king to enter into his kingdom, you know, in this context, in this time period, you know, on a horse, a war horse, or being pulled by a chariot, in a royal, regal manner, right? This is the king. This is Messiah. Our king of Israel, he's coming to Jerusalem now to establish his kingdom on a donkey. (laughs) So odd. So odd. Well, Jesus, in everything that he is saying and doing, he is all about fulfilling the scriptures and showing the world that he's no ordinary king. He's not like the rest of the world. And everything that he's doing, everything that he is saying, everything that Mark is writing about him, is showing us he is fulfilling the scriptures about Messiah. And Jesus is fulfilling the Messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 in this passage. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 9. Way back there in the Old Testament. It's in the near the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah 9. Go ahead and turn there. You'll find it uh, near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah. You don't have those little tabs on the side. It can make it a little bit harder. You'll find it there. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 9. It's on page 1317. You got the MacArthur study Bible like mine. Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm having us turn there because there is, th- this passage that we just read is so rich with, with imagery from the Old Testament and the, the Old Testament scriptures and how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. Even the things that people are saying are quoting the Old Testament scriptures. I want us to turn there because I want you to be in the habit of reading the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, it will help you have a, a better, richer, deeper understanding of what's going on uh, in the Gospels and in the New Testament, in Paul's writing as well. We must never abandon the Old Testament scriptures and think, well, we'll just study the New Testament. No, we need the whole counsel of God. Uh, and so we need to be reading these things and, and understanding both in relation to each other. And so Zechariah 9:9 is what Jesus is fulfilling here. Look at Zechariah 9, verse 9. Says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Now we get that part, right? Yes, Jesus, he's righteous, he's having salvation. He is the king, he's coming. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's why Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt. He is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah right here. And so we know that Jesus walked all the way from Galilee to Jericho and then from Jericho into this area. He walked all that way. And so he, he now he commandeers the colt when he's just about two miles from Jerusalem. So, what he's doing here, it's obvious that he is, he's doing this as a symbolic gesture. He's symbolically fulfilling and acting out the words of Zechariah's prophecy. He is intentional about what he's doing. There's no accident here. He knows all about it. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew where the cult would be. He told them what to say, and he fulfills it. There's no accident, no coincidence here. Jesus is very intentional about making these things happen, just as they were written of Messiah, he fulfills them. Now, it's interesting that Mark doesn't explain this plainly like Matthew does. As the reader, we're left to recall it on our own, through our own knowledge of the scriptures. And so if you weren't familiar with that passage in Zechariah, you wouldn't know, as a reader of Mark, that, hey, he just fulfilled Zechariah 9. Because Mark doesn't tell us specifically. He's he's telling us what Jesus is doing, but he's not making it plain that, hey, he's fulfilling the words of Zechariah. But Matthew does tell us. Matthew gives us, he tells us plainly. Jesus did this to fulfill the words of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. Oh, and if you have your uh, phones on, go ahead and silence those, that would be great. So, as the reader, we're left to recall it on our own through our own knowledge of the scriptures. Now, I want us to see there are some other char- characteristics of Jesus and Messiah in Zechariah chapter 9. So, let's continue. Let's look at that passage, Zechariah chapter 9. Let's look at verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nation. So, this ruler, he's going to speak peace. To the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river and to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. So notice here in this passage... We have dis- a description and characteristics of Jesus, our Savior King, in his first coming. Notice in verse 9, he is the King of Zion. Not only the King of Zion, but he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, we know that. Look also in verse 9, he is humble. Messiah Jesus is humble. He's been modeling service and humility since the day of his birth. Now he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem humble and riding on a donkey. Notice in verse 10, he brings peace. In his first coming, he brings peace and grace and love rather than war horses and chariots and battle bows. You see that in verse 10. He brings peace and grace and love, not war horses. He brings the good news of the gospel that we can be saved by grace through faith in him rather than bringing immediate judgment for our sins. He would have been perfectly righteous and just to come in that time and judge us for our sins and give us the wrath we deserve for our sins. But instead he brings the gospel that he's going to die in our place, that we can have life through faith in him. Look at verse 11. He brings freedom. Jesus brings freedom through his blood to deliver us from being held captive as prisoners and slaves to our sins. In verse 15, we see that he protects those who are his. And we know Jesus is our shelter and our salvation. He protects us from death, the death that we deserve for our sins. He is our shield and our protector. What can man do to us when we are in Christ? Yes, they can destroy the body, but they cannot kill our spirit. He is our protector, and he protects those who are his. Verse 9 and 16, both we see that he brings salvation. And we know that we, without Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus came to bring us salvation and life, abundant life here on earth and eternal life with him forever. Verse 17, we see he is good and beautiful. And oh, how good and beautiful is Jesus our Savior. How could anything else in life be more good and beautiful? Have you considered what this world would be like without the grace of Jesus? Just think about that for a minute. What would this world be like without without Christ in the world, if Christ had never come? Without Christ and the grace of God in this world, there would be nothing but wickedness everywhere. Our hearts are desperately wicked. In the days of Noah, before the flood, the Bible says that every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of man was only evil, continually. And you can see that, and many today even feel that. Hearts are just continually on evil and wickedness, constantly. And so the grace and salvation we have in Jesus is so good and so beautiful. And it's the basis for all the good and beautiful things that we have in this world today. Those come back to Jesus Christ. And so he is good and beautiful, verse 17. And we can see in verse 9 that he is cause for great rejoicing, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. There's no greater joy than life in Jesus. None in this world. And so we should rejoice greatly. We should shout for joy. Your king has come, and he brings salvation to all who trust in him. And we see this rejoicing and celebration in the crowds following Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. So we can go back to Mark now, chapter... Go back now to Mark. And we see the crowds, they're following Jesus. They are rejoicing at this point at this point and in this moment. And we can see in verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna. In the highest, they're shouting. They're picking up on Bartimaeus' chant. Jesus, the son of David, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there was a great crowd rejoicing and celebrating, but not everybody was. We know from Luke 19, verse 39, that not everyone was excited about Jesus' coming. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Make them be quiet. They're making all this ruckus. Make them stop, Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus, you can't help but worship him. Especially in this great moment. If I make them be quiet, the very rocks will cry out in praise, he says. Now, the crowd is chanting and shouting the words of Psalm 118 here. Psalm 118, starting at verse 19, which says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they're chanting and shouting the words of this psalm. And what I'm trying to do by giving you the, the bigger passage of Scripture is help you to feel maybe what they were feeling in that moment and, and get the picture in your mind of what they were probably seeing in their minds in that moment, in that point of time, the best I possibly can. Now, we, we look through a, a glass darkly now as we, as we see these texts. We live in a different culture and context and have a different knowledge of the scriptures than they had. So it's hard for us to understand and feel the impact of what is going on to the New Testament reader here in their time. But they would have seen maybe this whole image in their mind. The Lord coming through the gates of righteousness. Having in their mind, no, the stone the re- builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. All these things. This is the day the Lord may let us rejoice and be glad in it. How many How many different quotes of scripture do we know just in our our hearts from Psalm 118 in this passage? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as they're chanting this, they're they're probably in their mind's eye, they're feeling and seeing the other words of this passage. There are so many references to Messiah in this rich psalm. They shout Hosanna. Now, what does Hosanna mean? Have you ever considered what does that even mean? Sometimes we say words like hallelujah, what does that mean? Or we say hosanna, what does that mean? Well, hallelujah means praise the Lord. (laughs) And hosanna means save now. Save right now, God. That's what hosanna means. So when you say hosanna, or you hear that in a Christian song, it means save right now. Save us now, God. And so they're shouting, save now, God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Hosanna means. Yet, ironically, within a week's time, they're going to live out the words of verse 22 of Psalm 118, that the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. They're going to live that out by rejecting Jesus, putting him on the cross, and their act will establish him as the chief cornerstone of our salvation. And notice verse 23 of Psalm 118 that I read. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Amazing how all of these things are right here in this one rich psalm. And, and notice from Mark, they even spread out their cloaks, so that's like their outer garment. Very, these are valuable things, by the way. <laughs> yeah, this wasn't some cheap piece of cloth. You know, people are thrown on the road. They're taking something that's truly valuable to them. They're putting it on the ground so Jesus' donkey can walk on it. It's a, it's a way of submitting to his, to his leadership and his kingship and, and recognizing his royalty. They're putting their cloaks on the ground and the, the palm branches or the leafy branches that they had cut. This is where our Palm Sunday tradition comes from. So they're cutting off these leafy branches because kings can't walk on dirt. They walk on, they don't walk on dirt. You know, they ride the, don, the donkey, you know, he's, he's coming in, this is the king, he can't walk on dirt. And so they throw their cloaks down and they put leafy branches down to make a road for him. So even though Jesus now is showing his, his humility and he's living out the words of Zechariah nine. 9 It seems that the crowds, in the way that they're acting, they're thinking, okay, here's our king, this is our royalty. We put our cloaks down, we put the branches down. In in their mind's eye, they have another image of their Messiah King, one of greatness and power, not one of lowliness and humility. And they have an image in their mind that the one That they're shouting about will bring in the kingdom of their father David. It seems that they have more of the imagery of Psalm 24 perhaps in their minds and are hoping for this manifestation of the coming King of Glory. Psalm 24 says this Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? Oh, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Ah, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so, you know, from what we've learned in our passages leading up to Mark 11, we know that they have some of this imagery in their minds that Jesus will be Messiah King, He will reign in an earthly kingdom. You know, James and John wanted to sit at his right hand and at his left hand and have greatness there. So in their their minds, you know, they were afraid as they were approaching Jerusalem. So there might be even thinking here, okay, the king of glory is coming. It's time for the great battle to overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom of David forever and ever. Even his closest disciples thought that Jesus was coming as Messiah to overthrow the power of the Romans and establish himself as an earthly king. Now, where would they get that idea? Well, they would get that idea from 2 Samuel chapter 7. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, you know, I've been reading through Genesis with with. Uh, the family. And we've been seeing over and over again that God keeps his promises. You know, it's one of the central messages of the book of Genesis. God keeps his promises. And so I want us to look at 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 through 17, because God is, keep- once again, he's keeping his promises. And we see in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, and he's talking, this is God talking to David through the prophet Nathan. And God's talking to David through the prophet Nathan, and he says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, David, wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. There's the promise. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, this promise was partially fulfilled in Solomon's kingdom and his building of the temple, Solomon, David's son, who was king after him, it's partially fulfilled there, but it's fully fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is forever. And we know from the book of Matthew, Matthew makes very clear that Jesus is the son of David. He goes to extra lengths to make sure we understand Jesus is the son of David. And you see that over and over again in Matthew's work. So there's no wondering about it gives a, a clear genealogy even to make it clear Jesus is the son of David he's fulfilling these words and God is keeping his promises and so you know in, in times of life when we wonder or we doubt and we all wonder and we all doubt you know, God's power God's love for us God's promises for us God keeps his promises we can trust him Always on the highest mountaintops and the lowest valleys of life, we can be assured that you know God keeps his promises. Let's just remind ourselves of that. When you're feeling doubt in your heart, when you're feeling like, you know, I'm praying and God doesn't hear me, you just tell yourself, you know, God keeps his promises. And he does hear me. He hears my cry. He keeps his promises. So this scripture is partially fulfilled in Solomon, and it's fully fulfilled in Jesus. Now the crowds and his disciples, they didn't fully understand all of these things at the moment, deeply, fully understand them. They didn't understand that he was coming in humility and service to die on the cross for the sake of our sins. And and we know this from John's account of these events. John 12, 16 says it. (laughs) I didn't make that up. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They didn't understand. The crowds did not understand what was truly happening. Jesus' disciples didn't understand what was truly happening. The entire city didn't understand what was truly, truly happening about to happen. <clears throat> yeah, and, and he told them, right, plainly. How many times did he plainly tell them, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over, he's going to be killed, on the third day he's going to rise again. If you would have just walked up to any of the disciples, you, know, you can imagine yourself, walk up to any of the disciples at this moment and say, hey, what do you think about Jesus dying on the cross on Friday? you like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Are you crazy? Even though they'd heard it time and time and time again, they, they, didn't, know, they didn't understand that this, this is how it was going to play out. <clears throat> One other thing to notice about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and we find it in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city... He wept over it. I mean he, he started crying and, and not just like little tears trickling. You know, this is Jesus is weeping. And and some of you maybe not have ever weeped. Well, maybe you have little kids, you, you know, you, you weep sometimes when you get spanking, or <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you've really done something really bad. Yeah, so yeah, everyone in this room has wept. So and so you understand what that feeling is like. You know, it's your heart breaking within you, and here's Jesus, his heart is breaking within him, he is weeping over Jerusalem, and he says this, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, Jerusalem, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If you just knew and understood, Jerusalem, what, this is, what is going on here and what this is about, and that your Messiah, King, is here, if you had just repented of your sins, Jerusalem, and trusted in me, you could have life eternal. But you don't understand it, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They didn't understand that peace comes through repentance of sins and faith in Christ. They didn't want to have anything to do with that gospel message. And so the learning for us today is, you know, what about us? What about you today? You know, How does all this stuff apply to me? What, what's the point? Well, what about you today? Do you know the things that make for peace? Don't be like the unbelieving crowds, just going along with the, with the Jesus party until things get rough and then they scatter. And they don't really believe or I want to have anything to do with Jesus. They're just going along with the Jesus party right now. That's easy for us to do in our southern church context and our southern church culture. A lot of us go along with the Jesus party. Not really believing or having faith within our souls in Christ. Don't be like these unbelieving crowds. They loved the idea of a conquering king, but they had no faith at all. You can have peace in your life through faith in Christ. Understand that the time of your visitation is right Now, in this moment, the Spirit of God is in this place right now and is offering you peace and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I beg you, put your faith in Him today. Let today be your day of salvation and rejoice greatly, as the Scripture tells us He is the King of glory and He is righteous. And for those of us who have believed, let us rejoice greatly. You know, life is hard. It's a struggle, and we get down in our, in our hearts, and we get discouraged at life. And sometimes we just cry out and want to give up. And in those moments, you know, let's, let's turn our eyes to Jesus and see the beautiful Savior and know that he is right there carrying us through every moment of the day. So let us rejoice greatly, even through the valleys of the shadow of death that we walk through sometimes. Let us remember these truths and rejoice in Jesus every day. And let us know that our great Savior King is holding us in his arms, and nothing can ever, ever separate us from his love. And so thank you, Jesus. Thank you, and amen.